please hold. Sorry, just running late, letting people in the building. I gotta do everything. There's a one-armed wallpaper hanger. I can't hear you, which is a good thing. Uh, hi, everybody. How many times in the last two years have we heard the phrase "trust the science"? It's a very interesting phrase when I think about it, because it has uh, two different worlds in it, at least two different worlds in, in the world, which is science and religion. Trust is a religious thing. Science is a science thing. So today we're going to ask if what God says about you is true. Trust the science, if it is a science. And what God says that we have to do, we have to do it. Do you believe that? Is it true? I mean, is it just, you know, kind of true, or is it the absolute truth? What God says that we must do, who God says that we are. And finally, the third question is, can God do what he says he will do? Now, that's a no-brainer for us, right? But there's an application of that. All of us say, well, of course. But when it comes to our lives and our practice, are we really living that way? And those are the three questions we're going to ask and answer. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for his word in our time together and for this wonderful passage that we're about to dive into. And uh, so, therefore, with humility and reverence, thankfulness to God, let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for all that you do for us through your omnipotence. We know, Father, that you have all power and can do all things. We thank you, Father, that through you and you alone do we have a path to walk and by to you. Our Lord has already walked that path and he bids us to follow him. Help us understand, Lord, that the regular life that everybody lives is not good enough for us. You've given us much, much more. Just getting by, just surviving, even being comfortable, those things are not good enough for us. Show us, Father, each of us, show us why that's true. And when we're convinced of it, we will reach ahead to things that are higher. We ask, Father, that through your Spirit... For all of us, these things would become clear, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. So, continuing on the theme, and I've heard a lot of people say this to me, I've heard several people say it to me, that they're people of science. You know, are you a man or a woman of science? Um, people say, I believe in science. And then I always tell them, I've had a, I had a great conversation with a, a local guy who's uh He's try, he tries to be an atheist, but he's not very good at it. But 
uh, told me one time that, you know, I believe in science. And I said, well, then science is your religion. And he tried to tell me that that's not true. But then when I explained to him, which he knows, but perhaps hadn't thought it through, and that becomes the issue here. Because people claim things, but they don't really think them through. I said, well, you know, you believe in a Big Bang, you believe in multiple universes, you believe in all this stuff, none of it proven, and therefore you have faith in it. Uh, even our, our most advanced science knows a fraction of a percent of everything. You know, we don't know everything. We know that there are atoms. Now we know that you know we know there's a nucleus. We know there's stuff inside that nucleus, but we don't know how everything works. We don't even know what all the parts are. And so the people who say they believe in it, they believe by faith. So are you a man of science? I have, and many people have have heard a high-ranking medical bureaucrat who became world famous, who said, "I am science." But that was Quite the boast. Quite the boast. So uh, science, what science does is take things apart and see how they work. Right? So it's the, like, I knew uh, a certain kid who was a friend of mine when we were young. You know, there's always those kids who love to take everything apart, like the phone. I remember this kid, he took apart his parents' telephone. Like this, this, this kind, the old kind. He took it apart, see how it worked, but then he couldn't put it back together. <laughs> so he got in trouble for that. It's one thing to be able to take it apart, but you got to be able to put it and and make it work. Um, so that's what science does. Science takes things apart, sees what's in there, sees how it works, and that's what it does. Religion puts things together and discovers what they mean. So you can see, if we take God, just as an example now, before we get into our passage, if we take God out of our society, we take out meaning. And you get what you get, what we're seeing for these last several decades. Uh, really, last century, as God has been removed from society, meaning, morality, have waned, and criminality and people, miserable people who suicide increases. So science can tell you the chemical composition of strychnine, but what it can answer is the question of, if I put it in Granny's tea so that I can get her inheritance early, is that right or is it wrong? Science cannot answer that question. So, as I said, we heard ad nauseum, trust the science, trust the science. It's an odd word to go with science, is trust. <clears throat> this trust was applied, ironically, to an untested chemical that was destined to be injected into people. It was completely untested. So they said, well, don't worry about it. Trust it. <laughs> trust it. Now, if God came to you with a syringe and said, I'm going to put this in you, trust me, every one of us as believers should say, go right ahead. Please do. Why? Because your word is good enough. You see, science is not trust. Science is data. 
Frederick Nietzsche is famous for the quote, God is dead. But that quote is misunderstood. It's completely misunderstood. It was intended by him to be far more than a powerful statement that stated in a matter-of-fact way that God doesn't exist. It's not just a blanket term for atheism. The underlying idea was that the Enlightenment philosophy, which became modernism and postmodernism, that society, our universities, our, our businesses, our schools, our public schools, people in general in a lot of places, have removed God as implausible and unnecessary. Right? Do we really need God? Do we? Well, for example, take the Old Testament Jews. To the Old Testament Jews, God was everything. If it rained, God sent the rain. If there was a famine, there was something wrong with the nation in their relationship to God. If the crops were good, then God brought the abundance. God blessed us. Uh, But this is not the language of our modern world or our pattern of thought. When it rains, what do we say? Well, there were clouds in the air and water condensated and fell out of the sky. It is the water cycle. We explain it scientifically. If we have enough food, we say, well, the supply chain is good. The soup, you know, where do we get our food? Supermarket. <laughs> and we expect the supermarket to bring us food from all over the world. And for reasonable prices. And it's worked that way. Why? Supply chain. Free markets. But is that really where food comes from? Right? It is the blessing of God. But that has been removed from our vocabulary. And I don't mean us as believers. We should be praying to God for every meal and thanking Him for everything that we have. Knowing it all comes from Him. And honoring him with it, including our own bodies and our own lives. But there was once a world where the very existence of man, at the times in Israel in the past, and I think at certain times in our nation as well, in the past, there was once a world where the existence of mankind was synonymous with the activity of God. But now our minds work in such a way that leave no room for God. We don't need him. So the Enlightenment philosophy, which has grown into the modern world and the postmodern world, that's where we are now accordingly, as it is stated, the postmodern world, I guess next is post-postmodern world, has done away with God. And the fact that it's done away with God is obvious, but what is not so obvious is the results of that. Uh, What's not so obvious to the world that runs along as if it's no big deal that we don't worship God or acknowledge God anymore, is the broader metaphysical and moral implications of that conclusion. Uh, and, and our modern philosophers, academics, these university types, are do not have the courage to look at it. They don't. They don't have the courage to look at the ramifications of leaving God out of the world, out of society. They don't care to. They'd rather run to the next conference or dinner party. And yet, 
these are what we would call polite atheists. Polite atheists. They're not really willing to look at the implications of it. And, and so uh, I start this, this passage. I'll start it and then finish it in a bit. So this is where we get God is dead from. Okay, so we've all, you've probably heard it. God is dead is what he said. But that phrase comes from this story. It's not long. It's about a half a page. And uh, most of us probably have not heard this. It's written by Nietzsche. It's called The Joy of Wisdom. His work, I uh, can't remember what year it was done in, but ago, some time ago. So this is the madman. This is the madman is saying, have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he, did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, immigrated? Thus they yelled and they laughed. The madman runs into the square in the middle of the day with a lantern. That has an imagery. And he says to them, I seek God, I seek God. And these atheists laugh at him. And they say, well, maybe God is hiding. Maybe God is afraid of us. Maybe he's gone on a voyage. Maybe he's left. And they yelled that they laughed at the madman. These polite atheists, which exist in our world by the millions, wish to have their comfortable, stable, and secure lives, even as they have removed any foundation by which they can build such a world. When you take God out, you remove the foundation of the world that is comfortable, stable, and secure. The non-existence of God is not like the non-existence of unicorns. I don't believe in unicorns. My, my daughter has plenty of books that claim that they're true. I'm still skeptical. But whether you believed in them or not, nothing is built upon the unicorn. A mythical creature not being true has no effect on anybody. Except maybe a kid. When they find out Santa Claus isn't real or something, you know. But to dispense with God is to destroy the very foundations upon which a functioning society must work. In other words, if we're going to be stable, I have to not kill you. If we're going to be secure, I have to not steal your property. If we're going to be secure, I can't carjack you. I can't sell you drugs that are laced with things that are going to kill you and sleep at night. Meaning fentanyl, which is an enormous plague upon this Western world. Not that selling drugs is good anyway. Of course, that's not my point. But we should be able to live in a world, the, the world, if it's going to be safe and secure, if my car breaks down in some bad neighborhood that I can absolutely be safe, call a tow truck and wait for them to come and not fear a thing. Where does that come from? It comes from morality. 
The people in a society have to be good and moral. So let me finish this passage for you because it's neat. So they all laughed at him. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backwards, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world had yet has yet no, owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? <clears throat> is not the greatness of, his, of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply be to appear worthy of it. There has never been a greater deed and whoever is born after us. For the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. In the context of the whole story, that God is dead, really sings. And Nietzsche is brilliant here. He was never thought of as being a stupid man. But in fact, you know, this man, this madman, says that we killed God. And then he says, how did we drink the sea? In other words, it's a lesser thing to drink the entire ocean than it would be to kill the Almighty. But we did it. We pulled it off. We buried him. We unchained the earth from the sun. And now we're floating where? It's the imagery he picks. Now the earth is away from the sun, floating around, going up, down, anywhere it wants to go. By chance. We leave God, society falls apart. This is obvious. Obvious. Just have to spend, just drive through Portland, Portland, Oregon, or New York City, or Baltimore, or Detroit, or L.A., it's places without God. Now, here's the thing, and you may be thinking to yourself, well, well, Pastor Joe, what about Islam? Isn't Islam moral? Absolutely. If everybody believed Islam, would we get along fine? You know what? We would. We would. We'd get along just fine. If everybody adhered to it, 
Islam is quite moral. Uh, heck, would, if we all obeyed Confucius, the world would get along quite well. We'd do really well. We'd survive. But there's two issues to that. First one, when have we ever done that? <laughs> People say, you know, you don't have to follow God, just follow, you know, some, some philosopher or something say, you don't, you know, this God of the Bible thing is, he, he, this is crazy, people say, but, you know, follow Confucius. Just do that. When have we followed anybody? The human race. When have we done that? That's the first problem. We don't follow anybody. We follow our lusts and our passions and our desires. That's what we follow. <clears throat> So how have we survived as a, as a society in the West? I'll tell you what, it's Christianity. Christianity has put laws upon the world that said all of you who want to do your desires, you will not be allowed to do them or you will be incarcerated and punished accordingly. These are Christian laws. Not that we're a Christian country. We're not a Christian nation. But we're a, we're a nation that was built upon Christian law. To St. Magna Carta was the same thing in England. Heck, the, the Plymouth Accord, when, before they, uh, they got off the, the Mayflower, was based upon you know, biblical principle as well. But the first problem is that we've never followed anybody. The second problem is that, say we did, say we grabbed hold of Confucius and or Islam and or any other morality, and, and then we, you know, we all got along. And then God, the creator of this world, would come to us and say, that's not good enough. You see, the people, people who are famously saying that they're going to preserve the world, you know, uh, Green New Deal or whatever the heck it's called, that we're going to, you know, go, we're going to find a way. Say, really smart people got us all off fossil fuels and they found a, a, a way of energy that actually used no, hardly any resources and had no emissions and the whole planet was just perfectly clean of all things dirty. God would say, that's not good enough. If we all say, hey, God, look, we don't need you anymore because we've all become super moral. None of us steal. We all follow the Ten Commandments. Well, not all ten because we do worship other gods. You know, if we could bypass that one. None of us, we don't steal. We don't commit adultery. We don't murder. Uh, we don't lie. And of course, we don't celebrate the Sabbath either, you know. so there's. But we've got most of them. God would say, that's not good enough. Not good enough. It's not enough for him. So why is this important to us? Christians settle for what's not good enough. And we have to be convinced that we can't settle for that. And wherever we're, and though we say, well, we left behind that and we are truly following God. Whatever we know of God, whatever stage so-called of spiritual growth that we're at, we are always striving for higher. Because God says, you're not mature enough. Not yet. Now, don't get me wrong. Is he pleased with you? Absolutely. If you're, 
your faith is in Him and you're following Him, He's very pleased with you. But He is never satisfied with the status quo and neither should we be. And that's what this gets to. Paul is going to summarize the whole book in two sentences, which makes sense. In a letter like this, that is a letter of encouragement, as Paul closes the book, he's going to summarize very briefly what he's already written. That's what we do when we encourage. We encourage, we explain, we encourage, we give evidence, we, we give help in whatever way we can, and then we repeat the encouragement. If we're good encouragers, that's what we do. You know, if you tell somebody, look, God is all things under control, and then you explain the omniscience of God and how He controls everything, and how you could use examples from the Old Testament of how He got the Jews across the Red Sea, and how He sustained them in the wilderness, and so on and so forth. You get a million examples, thousands of examples, hundreds of examples from the Old Testament, and you give those, but then you come back and you say it again God is in control. Every time we encourage, we should do that. And when Paul encourages, he does the same thing. So what we're going to see here in the next few minutes is that God is a God of peace. But what God of peace means, and you get look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself. This peace refers to the fact that God is the one who controls all things and that he is to us everything. And so the God of peace is the one. It's really a way of saying that God is, uh, was, is, and is to come. When God announced his name to Moses at the burning bush and he said, I am that what I am, that's the God of peace. Because I'm self-existent, God would say, I control the past, I control the present, I control the future. And therefore, I have all things able to be conformed to my will. Therefore, my whole world is at peace. So say, for instance, in the Garden of Eden, right? On the, on the seventh day, God rested. Why could he rest? Everything, the work was done. Everything is perfect. Adam and Eve are at peace. That's, in, in Hebrew, that's shalom. That's exactly what it means. And that's why you'll see Paul here on, on many occasions speak of this um, sanctification and this peace uh, in terms of the coming Lord. All right, we've already seen it twice in this book, and we're going to see it again, that God is sustaining us right to the end. So when the, Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, we are of the day. We have nothing to fear and everything to be excited about. Is God going to preserve us to the end? That's the God of Shalom. Then we have sanctification. And sanctification means entirely, completely, every part of us. And this is the part that we say, really, God? This is when we get challenged. That's why this is important. Sanctification is still progressive. It's always progressive. So Paul says right there in chapter 4, verse 1, you've been doing great Thessalonians, excel still more. He says it twice in chapter 1 and in chapter 4. Excel still more. Because sanctification, which we explained yesterday, 
Sanctification is this being set apart from all that is rebellious, sinful, evil. You're set apart from that and unto God you are dedicated to His will. And this sanctification means, it always means this in the Scripture, every part of us, the body, the soul, outward and inward. And this is what, this takes away the compromise of a lot of believers who say, I know a lot of doctrine, but, you know, my lifestyle is that which is not dedicated to God. So that's okay, right? Because I know a lot of doctrine. I know a lot of doctrine, but I don't live in a sanctified manner. I know a lot of doctrine, but I am not, a, I am not faithful to God. I know a lot of doctrine, but I, I put things into my body that are sinful. And, you know, that's okay, right? And God would say, no. We need to be sanctified through and through. Outward and inward. Body and soul. So, uh, now the end goal of all of this is the image of Christ. That's why it's so progressive. And and can God really do this? So now, okay. All of me. So let's let's read it, verse twenty three. Now may the God of peace Himself. Now the Himself is there in the Greek. It's the the pronoun is written by Paul. He does not have to write this pronoun. The sentence would read just fine. Uh, he has God as the subject. Ha theos. He has it written there. The God, may the God himself. He adds the pronoun, autos, he adds the pronoun to emphasize that there's only one who can sanctify, and it's God. So, you know, technically we could say, if somebody says, I'm sanctified because of my good decisions, that's technically wrong. And in one level, it's right, but technically at the core of it, it's wrong. Your good decisions allowed God to sanctify you. God is the one who always sanctifies. But God acknowledges free will. So if you're going to, like Israel or any in the Scripture, if you're going to go the wrong way, then God's going to allow it. So when David takes Bathsheba and has Uriah killed, God doesn't step in there and stop him. It's allowed. Was that sanctified behavior? The complete opposite. It was allowed. When Israel in the wilderness complained and God killed them in the wilderness, it was allowed. After Israel went into the promised land and people started worshiping idols again, it was allowed. He didn't force them and he doesn't force us. But when we turn to God in faith and worship Him, then He works. And this is what's to get us excited. This is the question that Paul puts to us. But he doesn't put it in the form of a question. It's a statement. He says, let me give it to you in a second. That was a cliffhanger, if you're paying attention and you're not asleep. Uh, look at verse 23 again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, when I see this, I, I haven't spent enough time on the word without blame, but there's a, I guess there's a reason for that. Uh, I guess I, this is self-justification, if I may admit it. But um, the word without blame is linked to the word holiness, which is the word sanctified. So blameless is, this is even, even that word is unnecessary to write because Paul has actually, has already stated it by saying sanctified. What he does here is emphasize, right? because he's already spoken of sanctification in this chapter, in chapter 4, uh, and, and many other places in the scripture. Uh, we're not going to really look at that word today, but sanctification again means that I have set my soul and my body apart from that which is opposed to God, opposed to his will, and that which is uh, reprobate and, and all of those words that explain sin and evil. That I am away from that. My behavior, my thinking, everything. My speech included. And my body. This body, though it's sinful and it wants to sin, I control it. Remember Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave. I control it and I make it do God's will. And where do I get the power to do all of that? And I hope in your soul you just said, well, God the Holy Spirit, Pastor, of course. Right? That was what? Don't quench the Spirit. That was Sunday. You remember? That's what these were for. <laughs> so you wouldn't forget. What was Sunday about? You know, uh, matches. And then you remember. Don't quench the Spirit. Because He is the power that makes this all happen. So, we have sanctification unblameable. Here's what really Paul is emphasizing, and it's the word entirely. There's two of them, entirely and complete. I know that's kind of hard to see. It's kind of small. But I, I wanted them on the same slide because of these. Let's see. My, my pen is, yes. Now, so entirely... These are both in the same sentence, so where it says now here, now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. That word is that first one, holo, oh, it's really, they don't, they don't pronounce it, oh, so it's halatales, or to, is that, yeah, that's not a diphthong. So it's halatales, and halatales means whole, but it's a compound word. So you have hala, or hala, where's my pen? Oh, okay, never mind. My laser pointer work? No. Try it again. Oh, bummer. Tech, me and technology, man. Anyway, hala means whole. But telos is the second part of the word, which means complete. And this is actually where we get our word for mature from. And so... This word means sanctify you, all of you. That's what Paul is getting at. And here the emphasis is on your soul, your spirit, your body, your mind, all of it maturing. So mature means complete, the maturity of all of you. So, you know, we can't compromise with God and say, well, you know, I'm really good at studying Scripture, but 
I'm not good at all at controlling my body. Is that good enough? Am I sanctified? Now, in position, all of us are sanctified. Sanctified is one of those words that has both meanings. There's several concepts or truths in the New Testament that have both of those. Meaning that in Christ I'm set apart forever. Being sanctified in Christ means you can't lose your salvation, ever. But this is about behavior. This is about being set apart. That's why Paul is praying it. It's a prayer wish where he says, "May now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. Now, the second complete is may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. And complete is halakleron. And halakleron also has that same hala in front of it. Or as you read, holo, as we would probably pronounce it. And it means, you know, you can see where we get our word whole from. It's whole. But kleros means the lots. And kleros means all the... So when you cast lots in the ancient world, you put a bunch of pebbles of different color in the same bag, and then you reach in and you say, say your color is the red pebble, and if red gets picked out, you're the winner of whatever. This word means the whole bag. So it's the the whole bin of lottery tickets, if you will, or the whole bin of uh, bingo numbers or whatever they are. In other words, God is going to preserve us as this, meaning that we possess everything. And so this, again, is maturity in every part of you. And if we are and we keep, so can we lose this? Certainly. Can you be mature spiritually and then a year later be be not mature spiritually? I'd say even a month later you probably could. As you leave your focus on God and you start focusing on other things, you will lose it. So if God's the one preserving, which is what this says here, that your body preserved complete by the God of peace. How is he going to do that? Certainly my decisions matter here. Or else every Christian would be that. But even the fact that, you know, we look at the evidence of the world and we say, well, not all the Christians are like that. That's not the only reason. Right? God has designed this plan for us so that we choose him. See, we're made in His image. We're supposed to be like Him. He is showing us how to choose Him. And when all the obstacles are in the way and all the temptations and the bells and whistles on all sides are saying, don't do it, look over here, look over here, I'm saying, no, I'm choosing God. Despite all the suffering and the trial, I'm choosing God. God is teaching us how to choose Him, how to choose life, how to choose love, how to choose righteousness and justice, how to choose it. Because that's what He does. So when you, when you wonder, why doesn't God just force me to do this? That's the reason. The reason is, and, and, and it's got to be the real, you know, not that I understand the whole reason for how the world is. I don't. It baffles me. But and I'm sure you too. But why is the world like it is? All these crazy people running around who have no care about God and no belief in God. 
And doesn't God care and love for every single one of them? Every one of them. And he has a plan. He has, a, he has all in mind. But what he has certainly put in the heart of every person is choice. And God is teaching us to choose him no matter what. And this would mean that I understand the Lord. Now, I'm not even, let's leave aside you know, all the virtues of God that we choose and let's all wrap it up in the person of Jesus Christ. Because that's where it is. All of them are, are in Him. And despite anything and everything, I'm choosing Him. And by that, that's what this gets at, is all of you. The whole of you. Not just your mind, not just your spirit, not just your soul, not just your heart. As if we could separate all of those in some way. I'm sure we could. But also your body... Now look, I'm not the one who's going to judge you for this. Am I? So, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly. I've got my, I, I'm, I'm not qualified. That's why I, I do my best not to pass judgment on anybody. But all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is the only opportunity that you get to choose when other things are in the way and other things are vying for your affection. This is the only opportunity that you and I have to choose. In heaven, there's no more of that. And we're all going to be judged by Christ and rewarded accordingly. And for some Christians, that's going to be a... I, you know, I don't know what the emotion is. You know, I, I'm not even going to get to that, but... He said we'll be recompensed accordingly. So in the next line, now in verse 24, don't settle for less than what God has called you to. Or I, the, Paul uses the present tense here, what he's calling you to. I, I, real quick, just pick the PBJ to put on the board to be like, all right, well, I, I love a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a glass of milk. That's heaven on earth sometimes. But, uh, you know, so I'm sorry to the PBJ fans. But I was just trying to depict something that, you know, if you had this compared to like a, you know, a super fancy meal or something. Uh, when it comes to life, we can settle for, you know, things are good enough. That's why I started with the whole Nietzsche thing. The, our, our modern or postmodern world is taking God so far out of the picture that they're not even going to be able to get along with each other. <laughs> you know? So this, what they want, which is beautiful in Nietzsche's story, is that they're all comfortable and secure and, and they laugh at the madman, you know, and they say, well, maybe God ran away. I don't know. Ha, ha, ha. And, and they don't understand that they're actually tearing from under their own feet <clears throat> the things that's needed for their comfortability. And yet a Christian can be like, well, you know, what does uh, God say? This reminds me. I should be able to find the book 
of Revelation. Somewhere in the middle, right? Oh, that took a while. That was embarrassing. No, I knew where it was, obviously. But to the church at Laodicea, the angel of the church of to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right? Revelation three fourteen. The Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning and the creation of God says this. By the way, in verse fourteen he's called the faithful witness. All right, now look at verse twenty four. First Thessalonians five twenty four. This famous line, isn't it? Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. See that word faithful? It's the same word that's used here for Christ in Revelation three fourteen. The Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now I've I knew I'd rapidly run out of time, so what we'll do on Sunday is look at this word faithful. And faithful describes God. And faithful means that if you're a born-again believer, then God calls you. Now, notice in verse 24, faithful is he who calls you. Calls is a present participle. This present tense, he could have, Paul could have easily put it in an aorist tense and say faithful is God who called you. But it's not. It's in the present tense, which means that God's talking about your sanctification in time. I've called you today. I call you today. I call you tomorrow. I call you every moment of every day to live the life of entire sanctification. But Christians get like laid to see you here. So the amen, uh, faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds that you are neither hot. Uh, sorry. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. You're dedicated one way or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I have enough. I'm comfortable. And God says, you don't know what you really are. So, do not settle for less. That's what Christians do. What we do when we pursue sin. And we... (laughs) All the... Times like me where I'm, I've, after I've done what I've done, I'm like waiting for the, the massive retribution from God. And I wait. And it doesn't come. And I think, wow, well, that's cool. So I can keep doing this? And uh, yeah, you can. Eventually it catches up with you. God ain't going to let you go too far. He's too faithful for that. He will bring in discipline. Everybody who's gone through this can tell you. And you will suffer by your own decisions. You know, God has made us to run on Him, and when we don't run on Him, we do things to ourselves and oftentimes are permanent. Um, So we learn that way. As one person said to me today, you can't treat your body like a carnival and expect it to keep running. (laughs) He's a good friend of mine. I appreciated that. Yeah, and he said, you ever gone to one of those carnivals, you know, that are like, you know, down the street and where they, 
They have all these people who don't look like they're really good at mechanics, but they've slapped together these big machines, and you're going to get on it and go round and round and round at high speeds. Uh, you trust that thing, that rusty old thing? Can't treat your body like a carnival. So, uh, God is causing us so, you know, why doesn't the lightning bolt just hit us every time? Wouldn't we learn? Well, you know, learn's a big word, a broad word. Wouldn't we get our act together? You bet you would. It's almost like if God put like a divine shock collar on you, and every time you even thought about that sin, he zapped you, you'd stop. So why doesn't he do that? He could. It'd be easy. He doesn't have to put a collar on you. He can just blink his eye or whatever. He can just think it, zap you. Um, He's teaching us to choose. Because, you know, if this is going to be true about you, all of you, every believer has areas of their lives that they find easy to give over to God. Every believer has them. And what's awesome to see in believers is that they will tell you about that. They'll brag about it. You know, a person who has no propensity for a certain sin, well, yeah, I haven't done that. I would never think of doing that. God, I can't. What's wrong with those people who do that? You know, they judge them, elevate themselves, talk about how great they are. But. You know, anybody in the know, I am in the know about that, that anybody who's boasting about what they do, uh, I, that just goes right by me. I don't, I, don't, I don't entertain it for a second because, you know, all of us have things to overcome. Anyway, um, God does not want part of you. Isn't this obviously clear? God doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want just your mind and then, you know, treat your body like a carnival, do whatever the hell you want. God doesn't want just your body. Some people are really good at that. Never me, but they're really good at at being, you know, the hoity-toity righteous type. They do really well in the the very uh, religious, legalistic circles. They have like a natural self-control of the body. I don't know. For some reason, they have no propensity or no desire for those things. Yet, they have judging, bitterness. They're worried. They're afraid. They have all kinds of stuff going on in their heads. And it's not sanctified or set apart unto God. God wants all of us. The whole thing. The whole shebang. And that's what those words mean. So, the theme, which I guess I'm giving it to you at the end of class. That was supposed to be given to you at the beginning of class, but still working on my timing with my new, <laughs> my new methods. Uh, God is omnipotent because he will do all his good pleasure and his highest pleasure is you. Who's the one who does the sanctifying? God does. You allow him by faith, I, 
it's so amazing, you know, we're, we're, we want to also pat ourselves on the back for making good decisions. No, it's, you know what a really a good decision is? It's you having knowledge and knowing what's best for you, for others, and what glorifies God, and you choose it. Now, I know that's not always easy because you have, we're born sinners. I get that. Um, we're tempted not to do that pretty continually from our flesh. Until we overcome, we, we can put the flesh down and become overcomers. That, take, that takes time and perseverance. But when you know the right way and you choose it, if you're going to pat yourself on the back for that, then you've, you've, got a, you've got a long way to go. But that's okay. That's okay. We've all, got, we've all got a long way to go. But knowing the right way and choosing it, it's like you're lost in the woods and you're about to die and then all of a sudden you see a trail that you know leads to a road. Do you compliment yourself for finding that trail? Say, wow, what a survivalist I am. I think I'll take this path and go to the road and save my life. You're an idiot who got lost in the woods. That's what you are. And that's what we all are, myself included. We are lost, and God found us. So the impact on us in this is immense, really, by this passage. Let's read it again. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, uh, all of you, to maturity. May your spirit and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Complete means the whole shebang. Without blame, which is another way of saying sanctification, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, preserved means to be guarded uh, preserved complete means guarded or protected by God. So we didn't talk about that tonight, but you know it's it's pretty plain here that um, when I hand over my life to God, He's able to keep it. That's what He's saying. So when I what this comes to, and I shouldn't do this with a few minutes left, but what what this comes to is if I say, well. If I give all over to you, God, are you able to take care of it? And so that's what the next line is for. The next sentence says, faithful is he who calls you. Calls is present tense. Today you have a calling on your life and he's faithful. Now, faithful means he didn't make a mistake. If you're a born again believer, then you're called for this. You're called today for this. So he doesn't make mistakes when he elects. That's what the calling here is. It's your election. And he will also bring it to pass. This phrase, bring it to pass, is a simple Greek word that means to do. Bring it to pass is, is good. Uh, but if you were to just literally translate this the way it's written in Greek, it would say, and he also will do it. And there, there isn't an it there either. We have to add it in English. It just says, he will do. He will do. So the impact on us, again, is, is great. I've been chosen for this? Yes. I've been elected today to do this? Yes. By whom? The God of peace. The God who is 
the Alpha and Omega, the God who will bring us all to the end in glory, the God who will do it, who's omnipotent. By knowing that, and that I'm called to have my whole self sanctified, it increases your drive, your determination, and, and I think this is just as important, your excitement. You know, people, we get excited about all kinds of stuff. And I do too. Get excited about a new thing or a new trip or a new something. It's generally a new thing. But when do we get excited about being sanctified? And that's new too. Because sanctification is becoming more like Christ. This Every step of this process is new to us. More love, more ability, more strength, more courage, more everything. So increase your drive, determination, and excitement to do the things that are necessary to make this sanctification possible, which are decisions. And decisions are based upon faith. The knowledge to know what to do and then to do it based on faith. And when we do that, God promises I will bring it to pass. I faithfully calls. I faithfully call you. Do not think that I made a mistake. And so again, this is to give us determination and drive. And Paul's letter, and this is really the end of it. There's a little bit more, but this, these, these two lines are, are basically the, the theological or doctrinal close of the letter. It's a letter of encouragement. And he is encouraging them here at the end in a very brief format, but a very powerful format. And may we all be encouraged by it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the calling that you have put upon our lives every day. And by that calling, that our faith would grab hold of it and see it for what it is. This wonderful life that you have truly given us. May we be lights to the world as we continue to look at principles here, Father, that we know that not only do we want to be this, but we want all others to be like this too. So as we minister to them and serve others, may we, Father, uh, be of help and not hindrance and see what you would have us see. We ask in Christ's name, amen.